Let us pray. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today we're going to take a look at a Bible story. It is the Gospel reading. I am going to read it during the course of our message today. And we're going to talk about how to change the world. I almost call this how to rock your world. Because I think if you'd follow some of the things that Jesus would teach, you would literally rock your own world. Now this story is all about a chance encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria. It's the same kind of chance encounter that you and I have virtually every day. And this story shows us how that how God can use these chance encounters that you and I have in order to make a long-lasting difference in the lives of many people. So we're going to take a look at John chapter 4, and we're going to see what it teaches us as we can follow along. You might follow along the text on the back of your bulletin if you've got your Bible. But the story begins with Jesus and his disciples in Judea, and they are going, which is south in Palestine, and they're going to travel up to Galilee, which is in the north of Palestine. But to get there, they have to go through Samaria. Now, hopefully you remember or know from Bible stories that the Samaritans and the Jews really did not like each other very much. Uh, They shared kind of a common heritage and blood and faith, but it was kind of that commonality that caused the problem. The Samaritans, you see, were of a mixed race. Their Jewish ancestors had married into other ethnic groups. So from the Jewish perspective, uh, Samaritans were not much more than half-breeds. Uh, The Samaritans also practiced a religion that was similar to Judaism, but different. For example, they only followed the first five books of the Old Testament, so Jews didn't really consider them to be, honest to goodness, Jews. So over the years, there's a lot of bloodshed between these two groups, a lot of resentment, a lot of mistrust. Uh, Jews commonly looked at Samaritans with a great deal of contempt, in fact, would often spit in their presence. And in fact, when Jews traveled from Judea up to, to the north, they commonly took three additional days by crossing over through, uh, down from Jerusalem to Jericho across the Jordan River and go up the other side just so they did not have to get their feet dirty in the land of Samaria. But the scripture says, Jesus said, we have to go there. Now, this is where we're going to pick up our text. It's in verses 5 to 8. So he, that's Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, that would be about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now, here's the very first thing I want you to notice. Your greatest opportunities often arrive unplanned and unexpected. I mean, here's Jesus and his disciples. They had intended to spend only a short amount of time, long enough to have lunch, I guess, uh, and move on. But while they're in town buying food, Jesus waits by the well. And the Bible says he was tired, but this was when the opportunity presented itself. Now, Jesus asked this woman for water. And then in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, that's just a little aside put in there by Matthew. 
Now, it's not just that they did not associate with Samaritans. Specifically, they would not eat or drink or even share a table with a Samaritan. The prevailing attitude was that Samaritans were unclean, that they were less than human, they considered them dogs, and they, de- they, they deserved to be treated like the dogs that they were. And because of all of these past conflicts between the Jews and Samaritans, there were people in Jesus' day who would have treated Samaritans the exact same way that you and I, believe it or not, treat ethnic groups here in the United States. And they would have used their religion, like so many people in our country do today, and their own patriotism to justify their hatred for various ethnic groups. So things have not changed much. But what did Jesus do? Well, he asked this woman, who was a cultural enemy, for a drink. And here's the second lesson in how to change your world. God expects his people to treat all people like people. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? Now, it's not surprising that Jesus would ask a Samaritan for a drink, but that he would actually engage in a conversation with a woman. In addition to prevailing racist attitudes in the first century Palestine, women were looked upon with contempt. A Jew every morning when he prayed would say that he would thank God that he was not like an unbeliever or a Samaritan or even worse, a woman. I'd like to start your, matter of fact, I think there's some Lutherans that start their day like that. Well, I'm just kidding. But um, Jesus made a habit of breaking down barriers between people, as we see with Mary Magdalene, uh, the woman caught in adultery, the woman who anointed uh, Jesus' feet in the homes of Simon, or the woman who touched the hem of his garment. No, no, Jesus continually broke down racial, cultural, and sexist barriers. To Jesus, no one is less than human. Not in God's eyes. Not in the eyes of his people. No one is beyond redemption. Again, not in his eyes. And not in the eyes of his people. The Bible makes it very clear, you and I stand all on equal ground at the foot of the cross. In fact, Paul spelled it out this way in Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you all are all what? One in Christ Jesus. Now, I have done church consultation work for about 25 years. I have actually been in churches that intentionally market themselves to a specific demographic. The last one I was in said that the only people that they were looking for were upper middle class white families. In fact, they had just, right before I'd come, had done a mailing in which they specifically designated their brochure to be mailed to be delivered to some streets and not to other streets. Why? It's because they wanted to reach the people in their target demographic. In other words, upper class, white, middle class families. Now, let me ask you this. Do you know what your target demographic really is? Let me repeat it. There it is again. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you want to make a difference in your world, you need to let go of your biases. You need to let go of your prejudices. You you need to learn to see every living person as God sees them. 
Every person in this world, on this planet, matters to him. And guess what? If they matter to God, they better matter with you and me. I remember when we had field workers from the seminary that we used to be in Springfield. And we had two people, two seminary workers, come in our church, Jerome and Frank. And they were wonderful young men, and we would have them over for lunch. And when lunch was over and they were ready to leave, my kids wanted to hug and kiss them goodbye because they loved Jerome and Frank. Now, interestingly enough, Jerome always wanted to get out the door before he got a hug and a kiss. But my kids insisted they stand there until they gave him a hug and kiss goodbye. And when they left, I said to them, have you ever noticed any difference between Jerome and Frank? And they said, yeah, Frank has a mustache. (laughs) But you know, Jerome was black and Frank was white. But to my kids, it didn't make any difference, even as it should not make any difference to us. See, Jesus goes on in this story and he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and did also his sons and his flocks and hers? Now, what we immediately realize here is the spiritual significance of that term living water. But this woman did not understand that term living water because in the first century Palestine, living water meant running water. And Jesus said, well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She wanted running water in her house. And Jesus said, I give you water, you'll never thirst again. You know, she really didn't fully understand here. But now, actually, some Bible scholars say that the woman's response might have been made in jest. Maybe she thought she was in some sort of a conversation that had become kind of a verbal volley. And she was going along with what she thought was a joke. But regardless, she was not prepared for what Jesus said next. He's told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Well, here's the third key in being a world changer. We need to learn to speak the truth without condemnation. See, this woman undoubtedly was living in what most of us would call an immoral lifestyle. Now, Jesus did not ignore the fact that she'd been married five times, was not ignoring the fact that she was obviously living with somebody at this time who was not her husband. Neither did he condone it, neither did he encourage it. He simply addressed it with just the facts approach to let her know that this was an area of her life that she would need to deal with. Now, of the 20 or so verses in our text today of this recorded conversation between Jesus and this woman, only three verses are about her sinful life. The rest of this conversation, Jesus is establishing a friendship. He's telling her how to connect with God, and he's telling her about himself. So when it came to the subject of sin... 
He said only as much as needed to be said. He said enough to let the Holy Spirit convict her, and that was that. Now, it's interesting that Jesus, who probably had every right in the world to condemn people, did not do it. Instead, if you remember the verse that follows John 3:16, what does it say? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, you see this attitude expressed to the broken people who came to Jesus for mercy. This needs to be the same attitude that you and I have as well. Now, sometimes it seems that we want our message to only be about the ugliness of people's sin. I mean, far too often churches, I think one of the things that bugs me most about churches is, is finding out about what they're against. You know, what about what we're for? Oh, we're against them, and we're against them, and we're against them, and we're against those people who do this, and we don't do this, and we don't do that. Hey, if you want to play a place where you don't do anything, I think that's called a cemetery. They don't do anything there. What do we stand for? That's why I say, if we want to really make a difference in people's lives, we need to do much more than merely point out their sin. Our purpose is not to condemn other people. Our purpose is to help these people be saved. We need, we need to point people in the direction of the God who loves them and of the Savior who gave, died and gave his life for them. Now, when Jesus spoke about her husband, look what she said. She said, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. I mean, she recognized that. Our fa- and then she, she kind of changes the subject. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but the you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, I've thought about this passage a long time, and like I said, some people think that she's changing the subject. I don't think so. I think she's actually continuing. She's saying, look, if I'm going to make it back to God, how do I do it? Where do I make the proper sacrifice? Can I worship here as a Samaritan, or do I need to go to Jerusalem and offer the sacrifice there? Now, as I mentioned before, the Samaritan religion was different than the Jewish religion. Samaritans accepted only the first five books, the Pentateuch or the Torah, as scripture. In addition to that, the Samaritans had actually kind of adjusted history just a little bit, saying that there was a mountain in Samaria where Abraham had been asked to sacrifice Isaac and where Moses had also built an altar to worship God. And, And they did this in order to make this nearby mountain a holy place, just as if Jerusalem was a holy place for the Jewish people. So her question really to Jesus is this, which religion is really the true religion? Now, how did Jesus answer that question? Well, Jesus said, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. That's how Jesus answered the question. I can imagine how some other people might have actually answered this question. 
Well, first of all, ma'am, uh, we need to discuss some of the problems I've observed in the ways that you Samaritans interpret certain passages of the book of Moses. I mean, a, a detailed textual analysis would reveal that your beloved Mount Gerizim was not mentioned in most reliable ancient manuscripts. That was a later edition. So you can forget about your silly mountain being holy. Uh, there's nothing holy about it. The word of God proves that about this, which is why you silly Samaritans have a silly religion. I and mean, you need to denounce it. You need to abandon that silly religion. Oh, by the way, second, we need to discuss the veracity of the wisdom books and the prophets. Because in order to worship rightly, you have to have more than just the books of the Bible that you actually have. And third, let's not forget this monkey business about those five husbands. I'm not finished with that by a long shot. <laughs> Now, <laughs> we can laugh at that, but that's the way a lot of people would have approached this argument. Now, I'm being a little facetious, but it's important, it's important to note that Jesus did not engage this woman in a biblical debate. He told her how she could connect with the living God. Now, that tells us something. If you want to make a difference in this world, winning souls must be more important than winning arguments. I don't know anyone who could argue another person into heaven. See, the Christian life isn't just about intellectually accepting certain philosophical statements as truth. It's about giving God all of you. Loving him with what? All your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. The Christian life is about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Now, the question is, if God is looking for people who worship him in spirit and truth, if you want to be that part of the group, what does that mean? What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? Well, in the next verses, Jesus said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Later in the gospel, he says in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we must worship God in spirit and truth. Now, truth doesn't refer to correctly acknowledging the right set of facts. It refers to having a personal relationship with this living truth, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, that brings us to our fifth key to changing the world. And our objective is to help people connect with Jesus. I always think of a simple little idea that every relationship you have, every person you ever meet, in school, out of school, marketplace, out of the marketplace, on the street, in a gas station, at McDonald's, at Starbucks, wherever, you have an opportunity to build a bridge between you and them over which Jesus can ultimately travel. The question is, are you a bridge builder or, God forbid, are you a bridge taker downer? I don't know if there's such a word, but some people aren't that interested. I mean, there are some who think that we'll change the world through a political process. That's where their hope lies, and they always end up disappointed. I remember watching a well known TV preacher several years ago. His name was Jerry Falwell. And his sermon was called How to Bring America Back to God. How to Bring America Back to God. Point number one was vote. Point number two was write your representatives. Now, I kind of stopped right there because I thought there's nothing wrong with being politically involved. But ultimately, that is not where the power is, and that's not where our hope rests. Our hope is where? 
in Jesus. Now, I want my life, and I want your life, and really, I pray for this church all the time, for this church to be more than anything else about Jesus, about helping a lost world or lost people somehow connect with him. And our objective is to help people connect with Jesus because Jesus is really the only answer for the world. Now, let's take a look at how this story ends, because in the final section, there are three more interesting details I want to bring to your attention. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Oh, you bet they were. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said that there is nothing more fulfilling in life than doing God's will and being used by him to help change people's lives. And you know, after that woman left and went into town, I can imagine Jesus sitting back with a smile on his face, basking in the joy of what had just taken place. See, when this story began, he was tired and worn out and thirsty and hungry. That's why he sent the disciples into town. Now, we don't know if he ever got that drink of water. But none of that really mattered because he just changed a sinful woman's life. And through her influence, guess what? Many people came to know him. And I don't know anything that's more satisfying than being used by God. I also want you to see that when you make yourself available to be used by God, a whole new world of opportunity awaits you. Verse 35 says, do you not know four more months, four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. You know, some Christians and even some churches believe that we live in a world of shrinking opportunities. I hate that when I read that on Facebook or blogs where, oh, woe is us. There are less Christians than ever before. Oh, poor little us little Christians. Or Lutherans are the smallest little group in this whole little town. Come on, get off of it. You don't think that's a challenge laid out for you to go chase some non-Christians down? Why look upon it like, oh, poor us. We're a diminishing group. We ought to look upon that as a challenge. To get out there and share the love of Jesus with other people. I mean, they say people don't care about spiritual things anymore. Or that they don't want to come to church. Or that it's not like it used to be in the good old days. Uh, There's a Greek word for that. Hogwash. Uh, Or if you want the Hebrew, baloney. Uh, I'm going to tell you the truth of the matter, friends. There is a world of opportunity out there. There are people who are spiritually empty and who are are more than willing to talk about spiritual things. The fields are ripe for churches. They're ripe for people that are ready to hand deliver the good news to the community. Just give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, went to Starbucks to get myself something to drink in the afternoon. As I was standing in line, um, I, when I handed the guy money and I said, oh, by the way, um, whatever the person behind me 
once, I'm going to pay for it. And then I turned around to see who was behind me. And there was this young lady, I'm guessing about 20 years old, head shaved clean, about every bolt and piercing you could find across her face and tattoos down both of her arms, and a pair of sandals and raggedy jeans. And she said, oh, you don't need to do that for me. And I said, sure I do. She said, well, why would you want to do that for me? I said, well, why wouldn't I? I'm a nice guy. And she's like, well, nobody's ever done anything nice for me. I said, really? She says, well, are you looking at me? I said, yeah. And she said, what do you see? I said, I see somebody I'm going to buy a drink for. And she said, oh, come on. I said, okay, I, I recognize you look different than me. I mean, look at me. I said, look at me. What do you see? She says, no, you got cowboy boots on and jeans and a denim shirt. I said, that's what you see. I said, I see you. You got tattoos. You got piercings. You got some funky looking sandals. I kind of like them. And your haircut is darn close to mine. <laughs> I said, it didn't seem like we're that much different. We're both in Starbucks. We both want to drink. And we both got clothes on and we're both different. And I let her, I bought her a drink. And I went over and I sat down on the counter to mess around with my iPhone. And she came over and she asked if she could sit down for a minute. And she said, I just was curious why you would do this. She said, because most people, when they look at me, would not do this. And I said, well, I'll admit to you, I was a little surprised when I turned around. I was, I was kind of, I said, I didn't hope it was some guy in a three-piece suit or something, you know, who's going to offer me his BMW for being so nice. <laughs> and uh, and I, I said, well, I'm a Christian. And her comment was really, really. And I said, it just seemed like a nice thing to do. And, and I said, just because I'm a Christian, I said, it doesn't make me really weird or anything. I said, although I'm a retired pastor, a retiring pastor. And she said something about, you're not very retiring. And uh, I said, well, I'll just be nice again. And I got up and I said, well, I'm going to go. I said, but I said, just out of curiosity, is there anything I could pray for you about? And she began to cry. Nobody had ever asked her whether they could pray for her. And so I sat down and I said, okay, when you're done crying, let's pray. And I prayed for that young girl. I have not seen her since. I have no idea what happened in her life. But God presented that opportunity. God was the one who indicated to me, you got extra money, pay for somebody. My grandson does that continually going through drive throughs at Starbucks. He pays it forward. Here, pay for the next people. Keep whatever changes on this and pay for people. See, there's a world of opportunity. That's what I said, a world of opportunity out there. You know, it goes on. It says, even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus, the saying, one sows, the other reaps. Now, I did a little bit of sowing that day, and somebody may lead that lady to Jesus someday and baptize her, for all I know. She may become a street missionary in downtown Fort Worth, for all I know. said, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work. You've reaped the benefits of their labor. I had a guy walk into my office one time in Bloomington, Illinois, and said, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
Somebody had done the reaping. Somebody had done the sowing. And somebody had taken the rocks out of his field. Somebody had plowed. Somebody had planted. Somebody had cultivated. I was just there to reap what somebody else had sown. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. See, that's what happened. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. See, he only wanted to stay for a little lunch and move on. And said revival broke out. The move of God started with a single conversation with a sinful woman drawing water. The grace she spread through her little community, as a result, many lives were changed. See, when you let God use you, he multiplies your efforts. Opportunities never stop coming your way. Your efforts are blessed. They're multiplied, and then they're blessed again over and over. The people you help start helping other people. You reap what you haven't sown. You play a role in the changing the lives of people you'll never know personally. But because of what God can do through you, their lives will never, ever be the same again. Remember that this happens one life at a time. One day at a time. One simple little conversation at a time. And I pray that God will use not only you, but this church to make a difference in someone's life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you use us. We know that you give us countless numbers of opportunities. People walk into our lives Sometimes we bypass them intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but help us keep our eyes open, our ears open. And just if we can build a relationship between us and this other person, these other people, so that you can cross over so that ultimately they could also be in your kingdom. We would, we would pray for that. And Lord, today we pray on behalf and give thanks for Stephen, uh, Stephen and Chatney Besant as they were united in marriage yesterday. We pray that you... Uh, keep them uh, together, uh, surrounded by your love. We also pray for Margaret Strong as she's um, experiencing some stomach issues that you <coughs> renew her health. And Lord, I'd also pray for my wife Nancy that you would uh, bring some quick healing to her and help her get back to uh, full strength and full health again. And Lord, uh, also, would you we pray for traveling mercies today for Julie and myself and for Cheryl and as the three of us, you know, spend five days in, in a prison, that uh, you enable us again to renew old relationships and to build new relationships and bring the word of God to bear in other people's lives. Uh, we pray this in the precious name of Jesus, who also taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven.